Hey, that's going to be something when the Lord comes back, isn't it? Can you imagine our world? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord of the universe. Yeah, what a day that's going to be. In our uh, quest to become more like Jesus, as uh, the Bible says, God's purpose in our life ought to be, to, God's purpose in our life is that we would, in fact, become increasingly like Jesus. And we've looked at Jesus as a servant leader. And, um, you know, as a servant leader, he worshipped his father. He came all the way from heaven to earth and became a human being, emptied himself, humbled himself so that he could connect with other people, and he served the will of God. That was his desire. And those are the three legs on which this church stands, sort of uh, evaluating everything we do and the choices we make against those three purposes that God has in making us more like Christ. And so um, my goal here is to uh, spend a little time thinking about Moses as a servant leader. The thing about Jesus is he came to us as a servant leader. Right? That's who he was. But Moses had to be developed into a servant leader through his relationship with God. And I think it's pretty instructive when we spend some time thinking about how God and Moses interacted with each other and how God developed him into this great uh, leader, this servant leader who led the people of Israel you know, to become the nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so... Um, we need to note uh, right off the bat that uh, when Moses came into the world, the situation was not ideal. It's not like we would think, oh, this would be a great way to be born. He came into some pretty difficult uh, situations. He was born uh, probably around 1500 BC, 1500 years before Jesus came, but he was born to Hebrew slaves, right? His uh, dad's name was Amram. And his mother's name was Jochebed, and uh, they were slaves in Egypt. His uh, brother Aaron, older brother and older sister Miriam, were slaves. Uh, so Moses would have been the third child, and he was born into a minority family, if you will. Uh, the Hebrew race were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. And uh, in Exodus chapter 1, we sort of, if you have your Bible with you, uh, we sort of get the background of uh, where things were at when Moses came into the world. It says all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died and all his brothers and all his generation died. Uh, but the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with the Jewish people. And so uh, Deuteronomy uh, 10 says the same thing. It says, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and then the Lord your God made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And so it created a problem. Uh, you know, the Egyptians said, you know, there's too many of these people, and if they all get together and are of one mind, they can overthrow us and so on. So Verse 22, the last verse of chapter 1 says, The Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. If we can just get rid of all the males for a generation, we can get rid of uh, the Hebrew people. 
and uh, so on. So <clears throat> from the minute Moses was born, there was like a death sentence on his head. Okay, and if they had killed all the males, uh, they could eliminate the Jewish people. Now, you know that God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to become a people, and through uh, those people, God was going to bring a Messiah, whom we know as Jesus, and he was going to bless all the peoples or all the ethne, all the different races on the face of the earth. And so Satan knows that this is God's plan. And so this is one in Egypt here of several attempts to get rid of the Jewish people. You might remember the story of Esther in the Bible and that wicked guy Haman who had another plan to get rid of the Israelites. Uh, You might uh, be familiar with uh, Mr. Hitler uh, who, you know, during World War II uh, had the same idea. And uh, even today, there are nations that uh, their goal is to wipe Israel off the map and to push them into the Mediterranean Sea. And so um, in this instance, um, God used midwives. You can read it in chapter 1. I'm not going to take the time to do that. But he used a couple of midwives to uh, stem the tide here and to save the nation of Israel. And um, so, I I don't know, I think these couple of women must have been like uh, heads of the union of midwives in Egypt or something. They had powerful influence, reversed the whole thing. So when Moses is born in uh, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2, it says that his mother conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. A fine child. Every mother thinks their baby is a fine child, right? I mean, that's the typical mom. And uh, she saw him, and she wasn't going to just throw him in the river. And uh, so she risked, their, the parents risked their lives, really, to uh, hold on to him. It lasted about three months, and then she had to do something. And verse 3 says, when she could uh, hide him no longer, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with uh, brudeman, and pitch, and she put the child in it, and she placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Uh, so technically, right, she did what she was told to do. She put her child in the Nile. She just made a little boat for him so that he could float and, uh, and not drown. And she placed him where she knew that the princess, Pharaoh's only child from his first marriage, and the apple of daddy's eye, uh, this little princess, and put the baby Moses into the river where she knew that this girl came to bathe. And so uh, then she took Miriam, Moses' older sister, and uh, put her, you know, so that she could keep an eye on what was happening. And in verse 4, we read about this, right? And his sister stood at a distance to know what would happen to Moses. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So not only does Moses get to be raised in his own home, but mom gets paid for being a mom. You know, there's a precedent there that, uh, you know, I've spoken to many women along the way who think that they should be paid uh, for raising their children. 
Um, the princess uh, was, most scholars feel, was a, a girl by the name of uh, Hatshepsut, Hatshepsut, right? And she actually became the first female pharaoh in Egypt in time. Um, most people feel uh, that she was probably around seven or eight years old when this incident with Moses happened. So you might wonder why she so quickly agreed to have uh, the mother take care of the baby for a while because she herself was only, you know, uh, probably uh, maybe eight years old. And so um, Hatshepsut um, became the first female. She was the apple of her father's eye. Uh, and if all that's true, it, it would mean that um, Moses was probably about seven or eight years old when she married and uh, became the queen of Egypt before she declared herself to be the pharaoh in time. So Moses was, the point is, Moses is very high in the first family of Egypt, right? He's not that much younger than his mom, his adopted mom. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Uh, most everyone agrees that these early years of Moses' life were extremely important for him to establish his identity as a Jewish person. He had his parents to teach him who he was in God's eyes, to help him understand how extremely important those early years are. And it's here that Moses probably learned about his own history, learned about the values that God embraces and uh, that were passed down from generation to generation, probably orally, and uh, God speaking to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph finding out how the Hebrews actually got down into Egypt in the first place and so forth. And I want to suggest to you this morning that those early years are so important. Uh, children believe adults who love them. Children believe adults who really love them. And um, I think that's why churches need to always grow younger. Keep growing younger and keep, you know, the the community of saints, the, the church, the Ridgefield Baptist Church becomes the incubator in which God grows his children. And uh, it's great to have godly parents who teach, but it's even better to have those parents be a part of a community of believers and uh, who are conscious that God has entrusted to us the next generation of believers. And you, as a church, can have a profound effect on kids. If we just notice them, and if we don't treat them like they're a pain in the neck, I know they're noisy, I know they don't give any money, I know they take a lot of space, I know they eat all of our snacks before we get down there, and all of that, you know. But in spite of all of that, when they come to church and they feel loved, and they hear you and they overhear our conversations about the Lord and about what he's doing in our lives and about how we're trying to reach out to our neighbors and about how we care about other people and about missionary stories when they come and tell these stories of, and plant seeds in their hearts and in their minds about uh, how God might want to use them. This is that nurturing community. And uh, I'm so thankful to be welcomed into your church and to see so many young people in this church. It's a great thing, and uh, the natural thing is just for churches to kind of, you know, get old and grouchy. Um, in Romans 15, the Apostle Paul was writing to the, uh, you know, Roman church, and listen to what he says. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, first two verses here. 
we who are strong have an obligation, an obligation to the Lord, okay, to bear with the failings of the weak. I used to love to do marriage counseling from this verse. I used to take two people together and I say, okay, which one of you is mature? Of course, they're both wanting to say, I'm the more mature person than the other person. I said, great, you have to, an obligation to bear with the failings of the weaker person. It's very simple, right? I mean, this is just great advice. We who are strong, everybody wants to be the mature one. Everybody wants to think they're the strong one. You get two people in church who don't get along, get them together, sit them down with this verse and say, okay, which one of you is more mature spiritually? You have an obligation to bear with Joe. Joe, do you think you're the weak one? No, I'm more spiritually mature than him. Great, you have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses, right? Um, And the failings of the weak. And not just please yourself, but each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what it's about. And so uh, I think when it comes to young people, uh, you remember uh, Jesus? Uh, I remember studying this verse in in, uh, uh, Luke chapter 17 and verse 2. Jesus said it like this. It'd be better. He said, you know, uh, you're probably familiar with this. Temptations to sin come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Okay, and then he said this. It'd be better for that person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the ocean than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble that we recognize that these kids are watching us. We have an obligation to, you know, go along with their failings and forgive them and love them and instruct them and teach them and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, the Lord says it'd be terrible if you were the reason that one of these little kids went off into temptation. So our example, our example, even just our attendance at church you know, on a regular basis, sends a message to these kids. We had, uh, uh, with our kids growing up in church, uh, we had a lady who always had lollipops in her pocket. She just had lollipops. She was a dear lady, loved our kids, prayed for them uh, regularly, and every time they'd come to church, they'd go look for her, right? They'd get a lollipop. She'd pray for them. She'd tell them she was praying for them. She'd ask them, what do you want me to pray about this week? And, And so on and so forth. You can have a profound influence on a child just by being a member of uh, their Christian community. So Moses, okay, back to Exodus chapter 2, Moses gets adopted into this Egyptian family. He's a Jewish child. And, uh, you know, uh, the day came, verse 10 of chapter 2, when the child grew up, Moses grew up, she, uh, his uh, biological mom, uh, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, And he became her son. Moses was adopted, right? How hard must that day have been for mom? And how hard for Moses? You know, if you think about it, because and she called him Moses because she drew him out of the water. Now, uh, the New Testament sheds a little more light on this whole incident. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who is the... uh, the very first uh, deacon to be chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve the church as a deacon, 
Uh, Stephen is also the first Christian martyr, the first person who dies for his faith. And Stephen is before the uh, Jewish court and he's defending himself. And uh, in the process of talking about his life and why he believes what he believes and so forth, he says this, starting at uh, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. So Moses now has every advantage of Egyptian society. He grows up as royalty, I'm sure it had a lot of privileges, but uh, Moses in that process would have been exposed to the Egyptian worldview. He would have learned the Egyptian religion. He would have learned about the various gods that were worshipped in Egypt. He would have heard stories and myths and superstitions and so forth. He would have learned a different language. He probably had some military training. He was probably being groomed for a government job as part of the royal family. He is called in the Bible the son of Pharaoh's daughter and, uh, and eventually becomes the son of Pharaoh herself. And so in some ways, Moses had a very rough beginning, but in other ways, he had a very privileged uh, childhood. And uh, I love this. It says that he was mighty in words and deeds. God used Moses, right, to write the first five books of the Bible. He was mighty in words. He had the Egyptian education. And uh, God, you know, saw to it that he could write down what God wanted him to write for us so that we have a record, especially Genesis, of, you know, uh, a record of how we got here and where we're going and where we came from and so on. And uh, he was mighty in deeds. He was a leader. He got things done and so forth. And uh, then um, Moses has a defining moment, right, Uh, as we go forward here in Exodus Moses has a defining moment, and uh, let me read it for you, starting in verse 11. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, I suggest to you that this is a moment for Moses, a defining moment, where he has to decide, am I going to identify with the people of God or with the people of privilege? And I would suggest to you that you and I also come to times in our life when we have a moment, a defining moment, when we're asked to sort of declare our identity as to whether we're going to identify as the people of God and stand up for God's people and for God, uh, or are we going to fit into the culture around us so that we don't stand out too much? And so Moses has this defining moment, and it says in the next verse, he looked this way, he looked that way, and seeing nobody, he struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Uh, So Moses didn't want anybody to know, you know, but uh, he made a choice uh, to um, identify with the people of God, a defining moment. As I was putting this together, I couldn't help but think about Prince Harry. 
he's sort of turning his back, right, on the royal family, and he's got a cause that he feels that he's justified in doing and so forth. I wonder if it wasn't like something like that for Moses when Moses decided, you know, I'm going to identify with the people of God. And if you know the story, I'm pretty sure you probably do, uh, Moses takes off out of Egypt after this, and for the next third of his life, 40 years, he's out in the desert of Midian. Midian is no place. I mean, it's just no place. It's a part of Saudi Arabia that is just desolate. And uh, all you basically had was a couple of sheep herders that would uh, wander around from place to place looking for something to drink and something to eat for their uh, flocks and so forth. But he chooses to identify with these slaves, murders the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And uh, I say credit his mother and his father for teaching him early on who he really was and what God's purpose was for him. Uh, Maybe he stayed in touch after he got adopted with his biological parents. Maybe his parents could still nurture his faith as he was growing up. I don't know. Uh, Maybe he talked to some of the other Hebrew slaves and they sort of affirmed, like, wow, everything my mom and dad taught me is the same thing you believe, you know, and, and that you understand. And that's where, again, the church becomes so significant in the life of raising a godly person. Um, and so uh, maybe he stayed in touch with some of those people who told him about uh, the promises that God made to his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, who knows? But uh, things came to a head. Uh, when he saw his people being abused, he couldn't just sit by anymore, so he made a choice. He acted. Now, you know, there's a, um, a, a learning-doing gap. There's a lot of people who learn something and say they're committed to it and so forth, but when the situation presents and it's time for action and to actually move on what it is that we all agree on and our faith and so on, We stopped short. Uh, Moses carried on and had consequences in his life, but it was all part of a design by God, and um, he acted on what he believed. And again, we have some biblical commentary on this in the book of Acts as well, uh, as we keep going on in Acts chapter 7, and uh, verses uh, 25 to 29. Here's what uh, the Bible says. Um, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. I was, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It came into his heart. Do you ever ask yourself, where do thoughts that come to you come from? All of a sudden, you just have this thought. I think I'm going to go visit my Hebrew brothers. Where does that come from? I would say to you that those thoughts originate either with God, who's speaking to us, right? Or with the enemy, who's a liar. And, and we have to sort those out. We have to sort those those impulses, those thoughts that come to us. Where's this coming from? And it says, a thought came into his heart to go visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by, um, <clears throat> by smiting him down, uh, smiting down the Egyptian, striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now this is pretty cool. Moses already at this point understood that God was going to use him to deliver the slaves. He had a dream. He had a goal. He thought that God was going to use him to deliver the people of Israel. Now, where did that come from? Who knows, right? Maybe there is some evidence that his father, Amram, actually had a dream 
<clears throat> you know, and that perhaps God revealed Moses' destiny to the father, and the father was to guide him into that destiny that God had chosen for him. Um, maybe he had a dream like Joseph had a dream. Remember, Joseph had this dream about all the brothers bowing down to him and so forth, and he shared the dream, which maybe wasn't the best part of wisdom, but he did, and uh, it all you know, unfolded like it did, and, and so forth. We don't know exactly why, but here's the cool thing. You know, Moses knew that he was destined by God to do this, uh, but the people didn't get it. You ever in that situation where you feel that God is leading you to do something that nobody around you understands? And it's just simply because of our faith. It's just simply because God spoke to us through the scriptures or through somebody else or some means or uh, the Holy Spirit impressed it upon us that I have to do this and it's for the cause of Christ and nobody else gets it. Nobody else understands and that's where Moses was at. And uh, I think Moses learned a huge lesson here. Uh, if he was going to do this for God, he wasn't going to be able to do it by himself. Now, have you learned that lesson, right? You think God wants you to do something, you go for it. Uh, you're going to get married, and you're going to have a godly marriage, and you get all excited, and you know, two years into it, things aren't going so good. It's kind of rocky and so forth. And you had this dream that it was all going to be great. And now all of a sudden you go for it. And all of a sudden you're on the rocks. And it's like, you got to go back to God and get more wisdom. I don't know how to deal with this mate of mine. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I tried everything I know how to do. And Moses said, you know, I see this and I'm going to kill that Egyptian. And you're not going to abuse God's people. And, and he did what he could in his own strength but it wasn't going to work. Uh, it wasn't going to happen that way. He wasn't going to be able to do for God without God doing it through him. And again, God has some uh, commentary on this in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you know, the faith chapter, verse 24, uh, says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is not my identity. That's my worldly identity. That's how the world thinks of me. That's how the uh, elite of Egypt think of me, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, privilege and so forth. I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Choosing to be mistreated. You ever choose to be mistreated? It is a choice. You can choose, you know, to be mistreated. And uh, here, choosing to be mistreated, Moses says, um, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses made a choice. First, he refused to be identified in a worldly sense and wanted to be identified for who he really was in God's eyes. And um, he also then chooses uh, to identify with the Hebrew people who are suffering and who are slaves. Uh, like every believer, there comes a time in our life when uh, what we believe causes us to make choices that the people around us just don't understand. But if we're going to be true to God, and we're going to be true to who God made us to be, uh, then we need to make those choices, and it's simply because of our faith. I think Moses here is kind of like Jesus. You know, Why would Jesus come all the way from heaven, the only begotten Son of God, have all the pleasures and the all the glory of heaven, you know, and come down here to die on a cross for people like us, slaves, 
slaves to sin until Jesus releases us out of that slavery. Why would Jesus and why would Moses make a choice? You know, to honor their father's will for their life, to become these servant leaders. And, uh, you know, here's why Jesus did it. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 uh, says it like this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. Jesus, and as well as Moses, believed the promises of God and what was future. Uh, Moses says the same thing. He keeps, if we go a little further here in Hebrews 11, um, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Reproach is, you know, rejection. Uh, you know, reproach, rejection. <clears throat> choosing to identify with the promise that God made to my forefather Abraham that there was going to be a Jewish nation out of whom would come a Messiah who would bless all the families of the earth, choosing to identify with that Messiah rather than embrace the treasures of Egypt, which are fleeting. All pleasure is fleeting, isn't it? I mean, you just need another fix the next day, you know? If you're a Giants fan, you, you were... Last night was not a good night for you. You know, you need a new team or, you, you know, <laughs> you need a new season. But it says this, this passage in Hebrews 11 says it was by faith that Moses' parents hit him uh, because he was a beautiful, the word beautiful actually translates as no ordinary child. Like the parents understood there was something unique about this kid, Moses. There was something special about him. And uh, their faith was stronger than their fear. They risked their lives to save the child. And uh, again, uh, perhaps uh, Moses' father heard from God about what his uh, life was going to be. It was, his faith was nourished perhaps by his parents. And uh, I would suggest to you that faith in God, right, is the greatest power uh, in the world. A community of faith like Ridgefield Baptist Church plays a crucial role in uh, developing that kind of faith in children. So uh, Moses is 40 years old at this time. Uh, it's not his parents' faith anymore. It's his own faith. I like to say God doesn't have any grandchildren. Everybody knows God personally, right? Unless there's a child of a believing parent who before the age of accountability, God takes to raise in heaven for himself. Um, <clears throat> but... You can't, you know, I, I sometimes ask people, I say, in fact, just the other night I had a meeting and uh, I asked people, I asked a couple of these people, um, <clears throat> why do you believe that? We were talking about hiring some people in a different situation that I'm involved in. This guy raises his hand and he says, I'm Catholic. Is that going to be a problem? I said, well, uh, if somebody comes to you, are you going to tell them that Jesus paid it all and that their sins are gone and that they don't have to be guilty anymore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus are you going to tell them that or are you going to tell them that you know you're going to go to purgatory and don't worry about it Aunt Tilly will pray you out where'd you get that idea I asked him so my parents taught me that I said well what if your parents were off a little bit what if the Bible says that's not quite right what if these 
these people are looking for good news and Jesus has already paid it all and forgiven your sins and hallelujah, you can confess and be clean and walk out and, and just be, you know. I said, that's a problem. Because why? Because what you believe affects how you think, how you think affects how you feel and how you feel affects the choices that we make. So uh, anyway, by faith Moses refuses a godless life his faith causes him to experience dissonance with the culture that he's a part of. And uh, I think we can enjoy our heritage and there's much uh, you know, that's commendable. But for a believer, ultimately, a Christian is going to come to the point where they realize my prime identity is in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of this world. You ever ask yourself the radical language that the Bible uses to talk about becoming a Christian? It talks about being born all over again. Like, that's pretty radical. Right? Talks about becoming a new creation. A whole new creation. This isn't just like, oh, I become a Christian, I have to adjust a few things in my life. No, this is a transformation. This is like, you're going to be a whole new person. And Moses had that experience, you know. Uh, he chooses to be mistreated uh, with the people of God rather than the pleasures of this world. I just want to share one other verse with you. It's easy to remember. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8. Okay, uh, somebody taught me this one time. It's a passage of scripture that's dealing with Christians trying to sue each other over something or another. They dis have a disagreement and they're bringing lawsuits against each other and Paul is like, you know, ballistic on this. And uh, he says this. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another, you're already defeated. Then he asks this question, why not rather be wronged? Maybe there's more to living the Christian life than just defending our rights. Why not rather choose to be wronged? To preserve the unity of the people of God. That's what Paul's getting at. You ever ask that question? I had an elder confront me with that one time. He says, why don't you rather just be wronged? I'm like, why don't you be wronged? <laughs> you know? But that's quite a question, isn't it? Why wouldn't you rather just be wronged? So that you can keep the peace. You know, and glorify God in the process. Moses understood that by faith, uh, in fact, that's what faith is, right? In um, Hebrews, uh, that's really what faith is all about. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, future, right? And for the conviction of things not yet seen. That's what faith is. It's like how Jesus went to the cross. He thought about the joy that was set before, the joy of pleasing his father, the joy of delivering people like us out of our slavery to sin and out of eternal damnation and into eternal life, you know? He thought about the future and, and what this sacrifice would take and and when we think like that, when we take the promises of God and really believe them and we make choices in our life based on those, because I'm trusting God, we'll be out of step with the culture that we live in. But what a privilege it is to know what's coming, right? We sang it this morning. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've only just begun. Amazing grace. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Moses. We're thankful that you... Uh, Talk to us about him in the Bible. 
And uh, we ask that you would uh, teach us through his life. We think about these early years and how significant they were and how they played out as he got older. And as we continue to see how these things unfold in his life, I just pray that you'll uh, bring these lessons home to us in our hearts on a personal level so that we too can uh, be servant leaders, Father, that you can develop, that we would cooperate with you. And uh, it seems to me that the times in which we live just call for more servant leaders to be able to uh, walk with you and to serve you in these ways for Jesus' sake. Amen.